0: Sally, that was awesome. The second point of my sermon is now preached. No, that's great. I was like, wow. Yeah. It was great. It was just great. That's okay. We'll get to it, and I'll just kind of gloss over that part. I had too many words in my sermon today anyway. I just came to Cherokee. As Sally said, you know, earlier, we've been looking at the cast of characters for the Christmas story. We started with Mary, mother of Jesus. The message from Mary's life was just this. No matter what your life looks like, whether hard times, good times, the best times can only be had by getting caught up in God's story, God's plan for your life. When you do, when you surrender to his plan, God will show up in miraculous ways as he did for Mary. In ordinary places, in stormy places, in unpredictable places, Jesus will step into your life, and he'll change it for the better, just like he did for Mary. Next, we looked at the life of Joseph, the earthly surrogate father of Jesus. What little we know of Joseph's life, and it's, it's not much, we know that no matter what curveball life threw at him, he was a man of godly character, of integrity, a man that demonstrated that life is it's not always easy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's not fair. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it looks like Sally's life right now. But if we'll listen, God will speak to us. Whether it's through his word or some other means, even a dream, as he did for Daniel, God will let his voice be heard. From there, it's up to us to believe in the goodness of God, his goodness towards us, the fact that he is good to listen to his voice and then choose to obey it as Joseph did. And when we do, then God shows up and abundance happens. Last week, we looked at the two special guest stars of the Christmas story, Simeon and Anna. They were the picture of faithfulness and expectancy and thankfulness. And they remind us that destiny and legacy never shake hands with excuses Because despite their age, which was advanced, Anna was 84, Simeon was an old man, they showed up and they didn't give up. They wanted to see all that God had for them, and they did. They didn't miss the best moment of their life. This morning, we're going to look at the supporting cast of characters, the shepherds, the wise men, and then believe it or not, last but not least, the villain of the story, King Herod. Before we go there, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this has been an interesting and, well, challenging journey through the Christmas story. Father, I just, I'm, I'm grateful for what you show us. I'm grateful for how you challenge us. This morning, I don't expect it to be any different, because anytime time I open up the Word, it, it challenges me. Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive, that we would actually make the choices in our thinking to respond to your Word, and to respond to your Holy Spirit. So that Christmas this year is not business as usual, but it changes who we literally are, because you change us, Holy Spirit, from the inside out. That's what I'm praying for this morning. Father, that's what I'm expecting. So thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, the shepherds! You could preach a whole sermon about the shepherds. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse eight, Luke chapter two, verse eight, I'm going to leave, read out of the NIV uh, Bible. We're going to read the story of the shepherds yet again. We read it every Christmas. It falls into the story of Christmas very well. It says this, very simply, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. What a great place to live, out in the f- fields, right? It's winter. It's out in the fields. You might think, because they lived, you know, in the mid east there, uh, that it would have been warm all the time. Did you know that it snowed in Jerusalem? Just last week. Yeah, couldn't have been the best life in the world to be living outdoors, keeping watch over stinky, smelly sheep. But that's what it says. They were living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. What a wake up call. I woke up this morning to the sound of my wife's alarm clock. Okay, She would already gotten out of bed, and so she wasn't around to turn it off. <clears throat> and my first thought was, what on earth is she doing out of bed so early in the morning? My fuzzy brain hadn't kicked in. Oh, it's Sunday morning. Gee, you have to get up. And that's what I get for going to bed after doing my sermon, and it was a little late. Think about this. They're awoken in the middle of the night, terrified by a bunch of angels showing up. Now, I don't know what you think about angels, but they can be big and scary and, well, just to give you the idea, they always, always in Scripture come with a don't be afraid, okay? So they got to look scary, folks, you know? First appearance, they got to take people back because it's always followed by don't be afraid, okay? Just because I showed up. But the angel said to them, here it is, don't be afraid, I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Pretty strange news. If that wasn't so bad, suddenly there's a whole company of angels, a host of heavenly angels. Now, we don't know exactly how many that is. Okay, it could have been 100, it could have been 1,000, it could have been one of the many myriads of angels, which means it could have been 10,000. We don't really know. It's just a little scary to think about. They appear, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Now, it sounds like a nice, sweet kind of story, you know, God comes to the lowly shepherds and tells them what's going on, and they get to witness the birth, well, or at least after he's born, of the king of kings. Would you ever think about what it was like to be a shepherd in those days? They weren't exactly highly esteemed people. Uh, You know, there were senators in Rome, there were princes in Jerusalem, there were philosophers in Athens, Greece, but God didn't invite any of them. He just invited these shepherds. But the very nature of their work kept them out in the fields instead of in church on Saturday. They weren't very educated. They were kind of a shifty lot. They were always on the move. Whenever something turned up missing, shepherds usually got blamed for it. Their testimony, believe it or not, wasn't even admissible in a court of law because people didn't trust them to tell the truth. So it seems strange that the shepherds would be the first to hear the announcement. They were your average, ordinary, Everyday working people, and they were yet invited to the birth of the King of Kings. I'm sure the biggest surprise for them was that God even noticed them at all. Maybe you've never done anything extraordinary in your life. Maybe you're just an average, ordinary kind of person. I fall into that category. Maybe sometimes you wonder if God even notices you at all. But he does, just like he noticed them. God notices Everything. Nothing escapes his eye. No one is insignificant to God. Everybody is a somebody. Jesus once said, Two sparrows cost only a penny, but not even one of them can die without my Father's knowing it. God even knows how many hairs are on your head. So don't be afraid. You're worth much more than many sparrows. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, God longs to break into your life in unexpected ways, just like he did the shepherds, to shine the light of his glory into the darkness that surrounds you. And he invites you, just as he invited the shepherds to come and connect with Jesus, to embrace Jesus, to see Jesus. When you let him in like the shepherds did, then you have a story to tell like they did. I I find it interesting that people didn't really trust them to tell the truth and yet, people were amazed at the story. Why? You have to believe that there's something else going on here, right? They come, and, and they're, they're kind of the shifty lot. They're kind of the, well, the people that, that are hard to trust. And they start telling you this amazing, miraculous, unbelievable story that the Messiah, the one that they've waited for 200 years at least to their reckoning to save them from Rome, okay, is born. Why would you believe these guys? Well, you wouldn't unless you could prove it, right? Unless you could go and see for yourself. You imagine how crowded that manger scene got after these guys went into town and told them what they'd seen? Because you know what? People wouldn't have believed. They would have said, nah, I got to see this for my own self. I imagine it was like, the scripture doesn't say anything about that, but would you believe them? If they were known for, well, stretching the truth, if not telling lies, I wouldn't believe them. I'd want to go see it for myself. But they had a story to tell, and they were faithful to tell it. And you know what? So do you. Not everybody's going to believe you. You know, it doesn't work that way. But tell your story anyway. You may not be able to quote Scripture or write a sermon, But if God has broken into your life, then you have something to share. If you've come to Jesus and you've been changed by that experience, then you have a story to tell. You know, a whole lot of people that surround you on a day-to-day basis aren't gonna give any credibility to the authority of the Bible in their life, but they will listen to your story. And they'll wonder, would that work for me? Could that work for me? Would it be the same for me? Sharing your story can build a bridge for people to cross to meet Jesus. The message of the shepherd's story is just this. Even the outcast, even the underdogs, even the people that don't seem to matter to us matter to God. They matter so much that Jesus was willing to exchange a throne in heaven for a crib in the hay. And God invites every single one of us to come to Jesus and then sends us out to share the story of our encounter, the story of God's love for us shepherds weren't preachers. They may not have even been literate. They probably didn't quote scripture or know theology at all, but they told their story anyway. And that's all God asks us to do is to be witnesses, to tell our story. Like I said, you won't always be successful. There's a story about Billy Graham. Even Billy Graham didn't win them all, when he was visiting a, one of his cities for a crusade, he had written a letter to his wife, Ruth, and, and he was looking for a place to, to mail the letter. Outside the lobby of his hotel, he came across a young boy, and he asked the boy if he knew where there was a post office. The boy gave Billy Graham directions, and before leaving, Billy turned to the boy and said, come on over to the arena tonight, and I'll show you how to get to heaven. The boy looked at him and replied, how can you know how to get to heaven? You don't even know the way to the post office. You don't win them all, okay? <laughs> you, not even Billy Graham wins them all, okay? Tell your story anyway. Take a chance. Take a risk. Tell your story anyway. People need to hear how you've encountered Jesus. The Magi are a whole different story. Now, I'm going to read the story anyway about the, uh, by the way, the Magi are the wise men. That's just an interchangeable uh, name for the wise men. They show up at the birth of Jesus as well, but they're in a different book of the Bible. You need to turn to Matthew. Go back uh, to the first book of the New Testament, okay? First book, second chapter, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is the story of the wise men and how they intersect with Jesus, how they encounter Jesus. This is what it says. Again, I'm going to read out of the NIV. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Kind of a long story. It includes the story of the Magi. It also includes the story of Herod. The two we're going to talk about next. The Magi, Magi are interesting. They come kind of cloaked in a little bit of mystery, maybe even a little bit of magic, as Sally communicated. They were the satraps. They were the prefects. They were the magicians. They were the soothsayers, the fortune-tellers of their land. But they were also educated, scientific, wise men. We normally think there were three of them, though the Bible actually never says that. That happens in a song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. You know that song? We Three Kings of Orient Are. That one? Okay. That's not actually a biblical concept. There were probably a whole lot more of them. Chances are there were quite a few, more than that, that came. But we know that they brought certain gifts, and so we attribute a gift per person kind of thing. So that's how we get the, the, the three wise men. There could have been any number. We don't really know if the Magi arrived the actual day of Jesus' birth or not. It's probably not. In fact, in prior uh, centuries, Christians used to celebrate the day of the Magi's visit 12 days after Christmas on January 6th. Thus, the 12 days of Christmas, on the first day of Christmas. Okay, that's where that idea came from. Regardless, though, of when they arrived, and and scholars actually put their arrival as much as two years after he was born. Okay, they followed that star for a long time. Okay, that's possible. And, And the scripture relates to the fact that Joseph and Mary, by the time they got there, were living in a house. Okay, they weren't in the stable anymore. They were in a house. I did hear someone suggest sometime that Jesus would have been better off if it had been, you know, three wise women instead of wise men. They would have asked directions, probably got there sooner, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, you know, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, brought practical gifts from babies are us, like diapers, wipes, formula, that kind of thing. But then that would have been a different story, wouldn't it? Yeah. The wise men of the Christmas story, they come out of the East. We don't know exactly where, but in all probability, the land of Persia. How did they know about the Messiah? Well, most likely they studied about him. Again, what Sally said before, there was a man by the name of Daniel who about 586 years before the birth of Christ, approximately 586, just so you know, okay, was taken into captivity. Three years later, after his captivity, three years later, he becomes the head satrap, the head wise man of Babylon by doing the king a favor and not just interpreting his dream, but telling the king what his dream was. See, so that was the problem that the other guys had. The king was saying, You tell me my dream, and then I'll know if your interpretation is true. But first, you got to tell me what I dreamt, and then when you tell me what it means, I'll, I'll believe you. Kind of thing. Well, no one could do that except for God. And so Daniel, through God, was able to tell the, the, the king, This was your dream. And here's the interpretation. Because of that, he gets promoted. He's now the head just under the king of all of Babylon. I think there's a great lesson in this. Daniel becomes the lead person for these men who come out of the east. He shared what God gave him, the gifts that God had given him. He was used of God. He showed up. Okay, much like Simeon and Anna, he showed up when God called. And because of him, the wise men of Babylon get introduced to the God of the universe. And they begin to study. And as far as we know, for nearly 600 years, they've been looking for the birth of this king. It's why they didn't miss it. When the religious elite of Israel had no clue, these men did. And it was because of the life of Daniel. When they saw the star, they knew what it meant and they began their journey. They began to pursue the King of Kings. I think that may be the greatest lesson we learned from the wise men. So let me ask you, what are you pursuing in your life? What are you hot after? What are you going for in your life? A young banker was driving his BMW in the mountains during a rainstorm, and he rounded a curve, and the vehicle slid out of control toward a cliff. At the last moment, he unbuckled his seatbelt, and he jumped from the car. Though he escaped with his life, his left arm was caught in the hinge of the door and literally torn off his shoulder. A trucker passing by stopped After witnessing the accident, and he ran back to see if he could be of help, and there standing in a state of shock was this banker at the edge of the cliff moaning, oh no, my BMW, my BMW. The trucker pointed to the banker's shoulder and said, man, you got bigger problems than your car. With that, the banker looked at his shoulder, finally realizing that he'd lost his arm and began crying, oh no, my new Rolex, my new Rolex. (laughs) What are you in pursuit of? What matters to you? We don't know how far the wise men traveled. Maybe as much as 800 miles. We don't know how long it took them. Maybe as long as two years. That would make sense when you think about it because Herod then killed all of the children in Bethlehem that were two years and younger. What we do know is that they came. They pursued Jesus. They left their homes, perhaps families, just to see Jesus. They came all that way simply to worship at his feet. This was the real purpose behind their pursuit, to worship. Remember, when they came into Jerusalem, they asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. That was their point. That was their pursuit. That was why they came. And when they had finally found Jesus, that's exactly what they did. The Bible says they entered the house, saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. So I ask again, what are you pursuing? I'm going to give you a little bunny trail here. I've been told by far too many people that they would come to church here if we would just change our service time from 9.30 to 10 o'clock or later. It's true. My wife will, will back that up. 9.30 was just too early in the morning. It's too hard. Someday, when somebody says that to me again, I'll probably tell them how I really feel about that request. That I wouldn't change the time for fear that they'd actually show up. You see, I really don't want that kind of mindset to infect our body. I want us to be people in pursuit of Jesus, no matter where it takes us, no matter how far it takes us, no matter when it takes us. I want us to be a people that aren't satisfied with mediocrity that aren't satisfied with just getting by, that aren't satisfied with just a cursory relationship with Jesus or one another. I want us to be a people in pursuit of Jesus. I don't want us to be a people that are just after the benefits of his hands, but people who are after the opportunity to engage him, people who are after who he really is, to worship him, You know, that's really what Christmas is about. I think these wise men kind of remind us the core of Christmas is worship. They came to worship Jesus, and that's what we need to do as well. Worship is an expression of the heart. It's a response to who God is, to what he says and who he is for us. It's a mixture of joy. It's a mixture of reverence, of wonder. It's being aware of God's greatness, his goodness, his grace, his love. It's a feeling that comes from realizing that an uncontested, incomparable God of infinite glory and power and wonder chose to allow himself to be wrapped in the arms of a teenage girl in the presence of a carpenter on the floor of a stable just so that he could draw near to us, just so that we could experience his presence. I think these wise men understood the true meaning of Christmas, maybe better than anybody else in the whole cast of characters. Their pursuit reminds us that God longs for us to look for him and that he'll even light the way. Obviously, not everybody's interested in the light. Some choose the shadows. Some even choose the dark. There's a reason bad guys wear black in the movies. You ever notice that? You know, especially in the old melodramas. Anybody watch the old melodramas? You know, the Snidely Whiplash was always dressed in black with a tall black hat, and the hero was always dressed in white with a 10-gallon white hat, right? That's just how it works. Light dispels darkness. Herod really takes the lead role in the Christmas story in the way of Snidely Whiplash, or the villain of the story. It's easy to hate the villain of the story, isn't it? To see his faults to condemn his actions? I don't know if you've ever gone to a live melodrama production. Anybody ever gone to a live melodrama production? If you haven't, you've got to do it sometime just for the experience of doing it. It is a riot, okay? Typically, there's always this bad guy, this villain of the story in the show, and every time he comes on stage, the crowd is prompted to boo and hiss at him. It's the crowd, it's, that's what melodrama is about. You know, it's about getting the, the crowd involved in the story. Herod's character is like that in the story. The wise men knocking on his palace door, and he pretends to be interested in their quest when he's really only thinking about his own interests. It takes an angel warning the wise men to return home via a different way in order to keep the baby Jesus safe from Herod. Mind you, Herod is no melodrama villain, though. He's the real deal. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That's right. Herod had all the male children, two years and younger, slaughtered in Bethlehem. Why? What would possess a man to kill a town full of babies? One thing, fear, fear, fear of losing his position, losing his title, losing his wealth, losing his power, losing his legacy. That makes him look even worse, doesn't it? When you think about it, it makes him look even worse. He's greedy, he's insecure, he's power hungry, and he is a powerless person. I mean, when it comes right down to it, he may wield the sword, but he is a powerless person. In fact, Herod is so powerless that prior to his death, he called together a whole bunch of his nobles and important men in order to have them executed. That was his orders. They were to be executed upon his death just so that people would properly mourn his passing. If we kill enough people, everybody will be sad when I go away because they'll be mourning. Talk about insecure. This guy took the cake on that one. So what do we have to learn from a man like that? Far more than I probably have time to cover this morning. So we were driving here this morning, I told my wife, you know what, I could probably preach a sermon on the shepherds and on the magi. People do it all the time, every Christmas. I just didn't realize before I, I jumped into this thing with Herod, I could preach a whole sermon on this guy. There's a whole lot here we can learn from this guy. We all struggle with fear, don't we? Herod was struggling with fear, the fear of change, that his life would somehow be different. This is a man who was well known in history, documented by secular historian Josephus, that he made a common practice of killing all of his relatives so that nobody would challenge him for the throne. That's how insecure he was. If you were born a relative of this man, it wasn't wise to know that information unless you were going to leave the country because he would have you killed. He feared what might happen. He feared change. You know, we get comfortable with life, and we'll do just about anything to hold on to what we have. We've learned by life, for whatever reason, or at least we've assumed that change is not good for us. It's uncomfortable. It requires new thinking. It requires new doing. It requires new being. All things that tend to push us out of our comfort zone, and we like our comfort zones, don't we? Herod was comfortable with his comfort zone, but we're no less different than he is. How different would the Christmas story have been if Herod would have been a powerful enough person to set aside his fears and embrace his Messiah? See, we we, we kind of get the idea that he was somehow separated. No, Herod was a Jew. How different the story would have been if he was powerful enough to set aside his fears and embrace Jesus as his Messiah? The angel wouldn't have had to warn the wise men to go home a different way. He wouldn't have had to send Joseph and Mary packing off to Egypt with Jesus just to avoid Herod's massacre of the Bethlehem's babies. That would have never happened. Jesus might have had the advantage of having government endorsement for his ministry or at least recognition of his messiahship. But that's not how the story goes. Because Herod made decisions based on his fears. And now suddenly we're not quite so different from Herod, are we? We make decisions every day based on our fears. We make choices every day that alter or postpone our destiny in Christ because we fear. In his sci-fi novel, Dune, Frank Herbert called Fear the Mind Killer. I think Frank got it right. Fear is powerful. The Bible says that the antidote for fear is love. 1 John 4:18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It also says that we're not given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound thinking. It seems to me we have a choice. sound thinking, or the death of our mind, the death of our thinking. Get a choice. We can be like Herod and live in fear of change, or we can embrace it and grow and transform. The Christian life, folks, is a process of transformation. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. That means that this life is all about change. Change. It's all about evolving. It's all about becoming the image of Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what is left behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul understood you got to leave things behind and you got to step into the new. You have to be willing to accept change. That's not easy for us to do. I I get that. We hold on to our hurts. We hold on to our wounds. And when we do, they make us prisoners. And out of that prison, we respond to life. And I promise you, if you're living something less than an abundant life today, you need to start to embrace change. Change in terms of becoming more like Jesus. Jesus was the freest man that walked the planet, folks. He didn't worry about what people said about him. He knew who he was. He knew what his father had asked him to do. He spent copious amount of time talking to the father, staying connected. All of those things are important for us as well if we're going to be transformed into his image, if we're going to live the abundant life that he promised us was available. But it is about our choices. It is about us choosing to embrace transformation. You cannot receive all that God has for you when your heart and your hands are already full of something else. You have to be willing to do what Paul did. I Lay aside what is past, and I look forward to what's coming. Let me offer you one more thought about Herod before I close. And I think this is important for us to understand. Jesus was born for Herod too. As awful a person as he was, as bound up in his fears as he was, Jesus was born for him too. The villain of the Christmas story was just as loved by God as any other character in the story. It was only Herod's choices that separated him from God. It's only Herod's choices that actually make him the villain. He chose fear instead of love. We're about ready to embark into a whole new year, 2014. We have an opportunity to change everything in our lives. To embrace change is to embrace love. You'll have to be willing to risk in order to do that. You'll have to risk your heart maybe getting hurt from time to time. You'll have to measure the risk and come to a realization that the reward far outweighs whatever chance of risk you might take. Because I promise you, without that, 2014 won't look any better than 2013 or 12 or 11 or 10 or 9 or any other year you want to look back on. We have this weird thing that we do in our lives. We get nostalgic about the old days and how great they were. We forget that when we were in them, they weren't that great. We have selective amnesia, when it comes to certain things we like to think that you know things were simpler better somehow more pure back then they weren't i hear it all the time from people our world is going to hell in a handbasket okay you have no idea how depraved the ancient world was the ancient world looked just as bad as our world does today it really did Solomon probably said it best. There's nothing new under the sun. We've been depraved all the time. Ever since the fall of man, it's looked like this, okay? The only option out here is to transform. It's to change. It's to use the power that God has given us by his sovereign choice. He gave us a free will to choose, and you get the life you choose. In 2014, will you get the life you choose? You will. The question is, what will you choose? It's up to you. It really is. God will walk with you every step of the way. Even when you choose wrong, he won't let go. But you won't enjoy the consequences of your choices. It's time to get serious about pursuing Jesus. It's time to get serious about your intimacy with Christ. It's time to set aside the old things and embrace a new way of thinking and a new way of living when we move into the new year. Because anything less, and you'll not experience the full abundance that God has for you. You'll miss out on the joy. You'll miss out on the peace. You'll miss out on the rest. You'll miss out on the intimacy you could have if you don't make the choice to pursue Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. I I love this supporting cast of characters because they challenge me so much. The shepherds challenge me to think of my life differently because I am just an ordinary guy, but I also know that I've been called to engage the King of Kings, to witness him and to be a witness for him. The Magi challenge me with my level of commitment, what I'm willing to do just to see Jesus. And Herod challenges me, he really does, to make different choices in the new year. Father, I pray for us as a people that all of these characters of the Christmas story would really come to life in us as we move forward and that we would be like Paul, would leave behind the things of the past And we'd press on toward the high call of Christ Jesus in our lives. Because you have so much for us. You have amazing abundance for us. If we will but pursue intimacy with Jesus. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for being in this place this morning. Thank you for the challenge from your word, Father God. And Jesus, thank you. Thank you for walking with us. In Jesus' name, amen.